All right, please take your Bibles and turn with me back, if you would please, to Jeremiah 7. I preached through the entirety of Jeremiah 7 last week uh, in the context and had mentioned that last week was going to be my exposition. This week is more or less the application. It's going to be a little bit of a different application um, than usual, however. It's not going to be kind of that get up and go, inspire you to action sort of application. It's more going to be the application of taking the, a few elements of what we saw last week as it related to the sins of the nation and drawing some context, historical context, and then drawing some modern parallels to these concepts in order that we can perhaps be better equipped in some ways, um, and uh, even apart from being better equipped, so that we can have the proper context to understand uh, that this battle that is being fought over idolatry and over sins of any given age are not necessarily just the sins of an age. Uh, they are, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. And uh, the, the perversions, the sins of, of past generations are, are sins of this generation as well. Uh, the ways that Satan has got, gotten a hold of cultures as cultures and individuals have allowed themselves to go down the path of sin are, are just as, as prominent in today's culture and time as they were back in that day. We like to think of ourselves as a civilization that is, is uh, we'd call ourselves an advanced civilization, right? Uh, we have things certainly that, that uh, other times did not have as far as technology and uh, knowledge and these sorts of things, uh, by, but, but at the same time, human nature has not really, I mean, has not advanced. Human nature is the same, right? Uh, people are the same. Sin is the same, and we struggle with the same sins, and we may have, um, uh, we may have sterilized certain elements of these sins. Uh, you don't see necessarily people uh, that have little stone idols uh, anymore that, that they carry around with them and worship. Instead, uh, they worship the silicon and the screen and the, and the lights that are in their pocket, or they worship um, the people that they're seeing on their television screen, or they worship whatever it might be. So, so the, the objects have modernized, but it's the same thing. Right, it's the exact same thing. Idolatry is still rampant. Um, uh, the, the the desires of Satan for worship have never changed. And what we're going to find is that even deeper still, many of the terminologies, many of the actual concepts of worship, pagan worship, have remained fairly consistent throughout time. And this should not surprise us necessarily because Satan is still doing his work. Idolatry is still idolatry. Evil is still evil. And God is still God. So last week we considered some of these sins uh, and how really what, what I felt we were reading about, and this is slightly interpretive, is the culmination of what idolatry brought to this nation and the direction that idolatry brought this nation unto. And that's what we're going to focus in on this evening. Two particular concepts from Jeremiah 7 that I'd like to go back to, highlight again, and then make some links both to history and to the modern era. And we begin in verses 17 and 18 of Jeremiah 7, where last week we read this. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. 
and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. We see here that God speaks against the nation for their abominations and their idolatries. And one of these is this family practice of idolatry. So as God paints it here, the children go out and they gather the wood and they bring the wood to dad. And dad takes the wood and he puts all the wood together and he kindles the fire. And then mom comes out once the fire is ready and mom kneads the dough and bakes the cakes. And then they take those cakes and they offer them on the altar to the queen of heaven. So what we find here is a deep-seated idolatry that is not just a, a, a part of It's not hidden. It's not just a part of one individual person's uh, um, activities or spiritual activities. This is something that the family is coming together to do. This is this is a family purposed idea. There is there is a civil um, 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 cultural wide idolatry going on here at every level of civil society. This is just mainstream. This is a part of what they do. And I'd like to give you some history in regard to this concept of the Queen of Heaven so that you can know exactly what they were worshiping here and how it plays out in our time. It's a false doctrine which historically we can trace all the way back traditionally to the Tower of Babel. And we can, in fact, likely, depending on how we interpret things, trace it all the way forward to Mystery Babylon, which we'll talk about in a few weeks in Revelation. Babylon is one of the most important cities in all the Bible. In fact, next to Jerusalem, I think it could be comfortably argued that Babylon takes the number two spot as cities within the Bible that are of tremendous importance. That being said, they are not important for the same reason. Jerusalem, Zion, the city of the great God. Babylon, as we trace it going all the way back to Babel, And going all the way forward to Mystery Babylon in Revelation, Babylon is really the exact opposite. It's the antithesis of Jerusalem. It is the city of of the devil. It is the city of Satan. It is pictured all throughout the scriptures as the great enemy of God. Starting with Babel, going all the way forward to Mystery Babylon and its destruction toward the end. And this should not necessarily surprise us. Many months ago, as we were setting the foundation for our Revelation series, recall we talked about these two competing kingdoms that are developing side by side through history. Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom, and Satan's kingdom. And how Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit of God's kingdom in almost every conceivable way. Everything that God does, Satan kind of takes it and just reverses it. Whereas God emphasizes submission, Satan emphasizes rebellion. Whereas God emphasizes righteousness, Satan emphasizes uh, um, unrighteousness. Whereas uh, we, we have Christ as the great Messiah of, um, uh, of God's kingdom. We have Antichrist as the great Messiah of Satan's kingdom. Whereas we have the Holy Spirit as the empowerer of Christ, we have the false prophet as the empowerer of the Antichrist. And so we have this this mimicking, this counterfeit kingdom that is running side by side with God's kingdom throughout the course of the word of God. And so it should not surprise us that if God has chosen out a city, that Satan would choose out a city as well. And really we find the root of that in Babylon. 
It exists throughout the scriptures in opposition to God. Jerusalem representing religious obedience. Babylon representing religious apostasy. Let's walk through a brief history of Babylon. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we read this. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, And they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, and let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar, and they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. So our study originates with the origins of Babylon in Genesis 11. We are in the days after the flood. Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, came off the ark, and God called them to scatter about the earth, to distribute themselves throughout the earth, and to repopulate it. But they did not do so. Rather, they chose to remain in one place. They chose to to stay together. And Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, says that they stayed in the plain, a plain in the land of Shinar. This region, the plain of Shinar, is the ancient name for what would become known as Mesopotamia, which is still a rather ancient name for the fertile valley between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The area would eventually house many cities, including Babylon. We know it today as Iraq. It's modern-day Iraq. The Bible tells us that they all dwelt there. And one day they decided, let's build a city and a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's establish ourselves so we don't get scattered. Let's form a unified bond so that there is no threat of us dividing and scattering. And so they built this tower to make for themselves a name. And what we have here is, in fact, it it sounds somewhat innocuous, but it is, in fact, especially as as we continue to study the Scriptures, it's terrible rebellion against God. First, they're openly and purposefully defying God's command that they would scatter to repopulate the earth. They determined, in fact, not to scatter and were doing everything in their power to remain as one in the world. Secondly, they're seeking to make a name for themselves, to build a tower unto heaven, reflecting a determination to challenge God's authority and rule over them. And as they've done their, archaeologists have done their digging and whatnot, they find what's called ziggurats, different towers that would would be uh, um, placed in various places, places of worship, in order that people would worship the stars and the sun and the the moon and, and such, became a place of idolatry. So God went down and he scattered them by confusing the languages. And the name of the place was called Babel. When the languages were confused, they left off building this tower as they all dispersed according to their language. And God did this in order to to, to force man to do what he asked them to do and to keep man from this capacity when the all man unites and this desire when all man unites to unite not just in unity as as a human race but to unite against God which is what we see anytime man has ever sought to unite in this way 
it has been in a de 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 desire to deify man, to bring man in competition with, to, to defy, to compete with God. And this began at Babel. Now, in order to understand the deeper concepts of Babel, we actually go back one more chapter to Genesis 10, verses 1 through 10. And the Bible tells us this. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Medai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Torgamah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, and after their families, and their nations, and the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mitzrayim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rayama, and Sabteca, and the sons of Rayama, Shiva, and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So here we see the first generations after the flood. And what we find in these generations after the flood, we find the lines of Shem and Ham and Japheth. And we trace through the line of Ham to Cush and Mithraim and Phut and Canaan. And Cush, having several children, one of which was named Nimrod. And Nimrod is called a mighty hunter before the Lord. The Bible says that the beginning of his kingdom was a fourfold city-state system, including four cities, Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now we find that Nimrod, he's the grandson of Ham, right? So we have um, Ham, then we have Cush, then we have Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, the great-grandson of Noah. We're not, in, we're not that far removed from the flood. We've not been around all that long at this point. And the cities which Nimrod sought to rule over, the beginning of his kingdom, the Bible says, was these four cities. So he sought to bring about this kingdom, to unite these cities. And he was a man of, of from the Bible, a mighty hunter, a man of influence. From tradition and history, we, we, we see that he is regarded as a great king. We would understand Babylon to likely be the chiefest of these cities, Babel, and we would understand that because that is where they chose to build this great tower. There's not much more in the Bible explicitly about Nimrod other than what we've just read, nor about his successors. But there is an extremely unified tradition in regard to the history of Nimrod, in regard to what Nimrod began and what he came to symbolize. And whether all of this is entirely true, of course, it's not biblical, so it's not inspired, or whether it's tradition, what, 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 I, what I'm trying to get across here is that the tradition is very unified. In other words, you can go to cultures all around the world and find the same ideas. And I'll show you that. And in doing so, I think that there's a general comfort level that I have authoritatively with the elements of this, whether or not they all played out in the manner that, that I'll teach you historically, this is how the pagan false religions that have carried on these traditions see them systematically throughout the world.
This tradition can be traced through history, and it can be traced through points in the Bible as well. That's what brings this up in Jeremiah chapter 7. It's a tradition, in fact, which is continued today as well. So the history of occultic worship is rooted in a cult that is generally known today as, we just call it, the mother-child cult. Religious history states that Nimrod wielded great authority and power in the world following the flood. That as he grew, he became this mighty hunter before the Lord, and he became a great king before the Lord, and he wielded tremendous power, and he wielded tremendous authority. And the Bible, or the, the Bible does not tell us this. Tradition tell, tells us that he had a wife named Semiramis, and he, she was therefore Nimrod's queen, wielded great power as well. Tradition states that Nimrod met a violent death, actually at the hands of others, in the kingdom. And Semiramis, wanting to retain power, took the myths or the, 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 the promises of Messiah and sought to apply them to her son. So at this time, right, we are, we are just a few generations removed from Noah. We know that Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth understood Messiah, right? And we can understand all the way back to Eve and Eve's recognition of, uh, of um, Abel as the promised seed. And then when Abel is killed, Seth becomes the promised seed. We know that they understood the promises of Messiah. We know that they understood that Messiah was going to crush the serpent under his foot. We know that they understood that there would be a resurrection. We know these things from our studies in the Word of God. So what Semiramis does is she according to pagan tradition, sought to take the, the promises of Messiah and apply them to her son, a child named Tammuz. So Semiramis thus became the mother of the resurrected God. She would say that Tammuz was actually a reincarnation or a resurrection of Nimrod. In saying so, this son became the only begotten son, the, the express image of his father, became one with his father, and she became the blessed mother of God. So her son was elevated to deity. Semiramis was the mother goddess. Tammuz became her only begotten son. This woman was called by various names throughout the history of this mother-child cult in that region. The Virgin Mother, because she claimed this idea of virginity, purity, not, not the, the idea being of absolute purity and holiness. Holy Mother, Alma Mater, meaning nourishing mother, and the highest of these titles given to Semiramis was the Queen of Heaven. Now, this is an obvious perversion and counterfeit of the prophecies of Messiah. Once again, we should not be surprised by this. Satan knows the prophecies, right? Satan knows what's coming. And so for Satan to counterfeit Messiahs, he's done that many a time. You can read about Caesar Augustus in the years before Jesus' birth. And you can read about how he called himself the only begotten son. You can read about how he called himself the great son of God. You can read about how he sought to claim this Messiahship for himself. So there have been many competing attempts at Messiah. As a matter of fact, even in the days, uh, in, in Jewish history, in the days of the Maccabees, there was a man claiming to be Messiah. So this is not unheard of. And the fact that uh, the prophecies that Satan would understand as history unfolds of the promises that a virgin would, would, would conceive and bring, bring forth a son, and this son would be 
Messiah would not be unknown to him and that these prophecies would not be unknown to him, how would he, uh, how hard would it be for him to seek to reproduce them in a way that would cause at, at, at very, the very least confusion? So, say, Pastor, you've got all of this religious occultic history going on. How do we know it's true? The reason why I can say with general confidence this evening that, this, uh, that there's some validity here is because this mother-child cult is found in nearly every civilization that has been found. In Canaan, it was the virgin mother Semiramis with her son Tammuz. It was also um, Astarte or Ashtaroth and Baal, the mother and the son in ancient Germanic culture, the virgin mother that they worshipped was called Hertha, with her son. In Scandinavian culture, they called her Disa, and, her, and they worshipped her son. In Egyptian culture, the mother's name was Isis, and she held her son Horus, who was the reincarnation of her slain husband Osiris. In Indian culture, the virgin mother was called Devaki, and her son was named Krishna, or Isi and, Isa, uh, and Iswara. In Asia, the virgin mother was called Sibyl and her son Deoyas. In Rome, the virgin mother was Fortuna and her son was Jupiter Pur. In Greece, the virgin mother was Irene and her son Pluto. In China, the mother's name was Xingmu, who is also seen holding her son. That's that one right there. No, that's, that's the Indian one. That's that one up there. Excuse me. And so we have this idea of the virgin mother holding her son, the mother goddess and the, the, the son, the only begotten son, found in cultures all around the world. This, again, should not surprise us. Number one, because we know that the understanding of God's promises was scattered with Shem, Ham, and Japheth and, and, their, their, uh, and their, their progeny, right? But then we also see how it has been perverted. And as we trace those perversions to its deepest point, that deepest point is, by religious tradition, Babylon. Much more that we could say about this As we see this work its way out in Scripture, the places where this comes, becomes most apparent is particularly Ashtaroth and Baal. Baal is the, the god that we see most regularly in the Scriptures, and we'll talk about him a little bit more. But we also do see some links to Tammuz. So, as we talk about Baal... We've already seen this in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, the priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Verse, uh, Jeremiah 7, verse 9, Will ye steal? Will ye murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walked after other gods whom ye know not? So Baal was still a problem in this time. 
But what I want to really focus in on, one that really links this concept of Semiramis and her son, is found in Ezekiel. We talked a little bit just briefly in Sunday school about the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish occultic book this morning. And a lot of that we can even see having its origins all the way back to before the captivity and around the time of the captivity. So Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet, a prophet that lived in a refugee camp by the river Kibar in Babylon following the second deportation in 597 B.C. To this end, we begin, uh, he begins his ministry at the tail end of Jeremiah's ministry, right? Remember, Jeremiah is alive at the time of the overthrow of Jerusalem. However, he's getting to the end of his ministry at that point. Ezekiel is just beginning his ministry. Ezekiel 8 God shows Ezekiel all of the wickedness of the nation and the things that they're doing in secret. And God takes Ezekiel by vision into the temple where he sees pagan worship of false gods. He sees the priests with their back to the temple worshiping the sun. He sees uh, caricatures of false pagan gods from Egypt and from Babylon all over the walls. And he sees uh, the priests actually doing these pagan occultic sacrifices underneath the temple. And in verse 14 we read this. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, Ezekiel 8.14, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat a woman weeping for Tammuz. Right here in Ezekiel 8.14, the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel, in the land of Judah, on the temple grounds, Ezekiel, through a vision, sees a woman performing a ritual called weeping for Tammuz. And this brings us back to one of several hallmarks of the mother-child cult as it relates to pagan worship. One of these hallmarks would be this weeping for Tammuz. This was a 40-day time of mourning. It began as a derivative of a legend that Tammuz, who uh, was, of course, the son of Semiramis, was killed at age 40 while hunting wild boar. To that end, the kingdom uh, within which he was in, there in Babel, declared that there would be a 40-day time of mourning and fasting, one day for each year of his life, where they would weep for Tammuz, expecting after the fact that Tammuz would rise from the dead. In Canaan, this was also purposed in a 40-day weeping for Baal. And we, we can find this uh, within the Philistine uh, uh, system. We also can find it in history that around the time of the first harvest, which was, by the way, about the time of the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread and uh, Passover, around the time of that first harvest, just prior to that first harvest, they would mourn for 40 days, weep for Baal for 40 days, the exact same idea here, and their, their expectation would be that through their weeping and mourning and worship, Baal would rise from the dead, he would awaken, and then he would give them a good harvest. And then when the harvest died at the end of the year, Baal would die with it. And then they'd weep for 40 days and then he would come back and he'd give them their next 
harvest. And this was the idea within the Baal, Astarte, Ashtaroth um, side of things. This perversion of the mother goddess Ashtaroth is found throughout Israel. It's found in the days of Solomon. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 13, we read this. The high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had builded for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Cheshmosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. So uh, Solomon, through the, the bad influence of his many pagan wives, actually started worshiping a mother goddess. And this may have actually been the first derivative of the Queen of Heaven that began being worshipped in Jewish history, at which point now they're still worshipping the Queen of Heaven in the days of Jeremiah. So by the day's end, um, women stood on the Temple Mount weeping for Tammuz, practicing this 40-day period of mourning, calling for the resurrection of the son of the Mother Goddess. And this is where it all began, with God emphasizing that within the nation, they were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. And the way that they were worshiping the Queen of Heaven as it relates to Jeremiah is that they were making these round cakes, and they were taking these round cakes and they were offering them up as an offering to the Queen of Heaven. Now, why does all of this matter today? Other than the obvious historical and biblical insight which it brings. Now you know what it means when they're weeping for Tammuz. Now you know what it means when they're worshipping Ashtaroth. Now you know what it means when they're worshipping the Queen of Heaven. Now you, you can trace this all the way back to the mother-child cult of Babylon. But the reason why this is so important for us today is because much of the traditions of the mother-child cult are actually quite alive and well in the church today. They're, in fact, alive and well in the cultural church today, even as some of the ways that we might worship. Though, of course, we're distanced from that in many ways. But the mother-child cult still has a very strong influence in the Roman Catholic Church. As a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church is point for point a mother-child cult with their worship of Mary, their veneration of Mary. A while ago, we walked through a history lesson where we discovered that the Roman Catholic Church had been heavily paganized in the days of the great emperor, Emperor Constantine of Rome, right? Remember, if you remember that, that uh, history lesson slash sermon thing. It was at this time that many alterations were made to the religious worship system of the Christians, and it kind of brought it in line with the more commonly accepted worship systems of the day. There's no clearer or easier link to paganism than to see what the Roman Catholic Church has done with Mary. Within the Catholic Church, Mary is called the Queen of Heaven. She is called the Virgin Mother, among several other names that conjure up direct comparisons to the mother-child cult. Mary is revered and worshipped. They pray to her. Oftentimes, she is elevated even above her son, Jesus Christ, in Roman Catholic worship. The Catholic Church, outside of any doctrinal or reasonable assumption, states her to be sinless herself, a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. The idea that Mary herself was sinless, thus elevating her to the status of deity. They pray to her. They sing to her. They sing about her. They have assumed the deepest essence of the mother-child cult worship as it relates to Mary. Notice that there's a crown on her head in all of these pictures as the Queen of Heaven. 
And let me just say before we continue, the mother-child cult is obviously an attempt by Satan to confuse and distract. Satan loves to draw people from truth to error by taking truth and mixing it with error and so deceiving, right? Satan's never going to come out, well, it's, it's kind of happening in this age because people are becoming so hardened to error, but Satan has very rarely in history come out and just said, this is evil, do it. He's sought to mimic the truth and to twist the truth and just pervert the truth enough to get people off track, to get people confused. If you've ever done any woodwork or whatever the case may be and you've worked with angles and you've got, uh, you need a, a 45 degree angle, if you put that angle at 43 degrees, well, if you're only working with a few inches, that's fine, right? But if you extend 43 degrees out a few feet and 45 degrees out a few feet, you're going to find that the gap gets pretty wide as that angle continues to move, right? If Satan can get us off by two degrees, well, maybe today we'll be fine. But give it two generations of two degrees off, and how far are we going to be from the truths of biblical Christianity? And this is what Satan does, and this is really what we see in this mother-child cult. Many of the elements of the mother-child cult very closely reflect what we see in Scripture, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that this virgin's name was Mary, that she was one to be blessed of God, but... But then it takes it to the next step. She becomes the queen of heaven. She becomes sinlessly perfect herself. She becomes elevated. They begin to venerate and worship her. And next thing you know, we have a mother-child cult. And this is, this is a Babylon idea. This is not a Jerusalem idea. This is rooted in the, the, the uh, spiritual apostasy of mystery Babylon, the spiritual apostasy of, of Babel. This is not rooted in the truths of God found in Zion. Satan has been very successful in almost every major civilization of drawing large numbers into false worship systems, elevating women to the title of Queen of Heaven, revering her with her son in some sort of pagan worship. It's, it's interesting as you read, if you, if you read the history of, of the Roman Catholic extension as they reached out to various other cultures through the Jesuits and through the, the Dominicans, what you find is that there were many cultures that they went into where they were startled to find out that there was already a mother-child system being worshipped. That they were bringing this Mary-Jesus system and they got there and the pagans already had a mother-child system in place and they just had to change the names and all was good. Right? Because the mother-child system was already in place and they, they were startled that it was already there because they had not brought it. Well, that's because this system goes all the way back to Babel. An unfortunate side effect of generations of pagan practice, the reflection of these scenes are seen, again, even in churches such as ours. And as I say, this does not necessarily mean that what we are doing is wrong or evil, as long as the practice itself has a legitimate function and a virtuous purpose. But the connections are there nonetheless. And so as we walk through a few of these connections, it might make us a little uncomfortable. But we need to understand that they are there. The word Yule is a Chaldean word for infant or little child. Came to denote December 25th as Yule Day. The mother-son cult in Egypt and in other places celebrated the birth of the son of the Queen of Heaven at the time of the winter solstice. And the time of the winter solstice was December 25th on the ancient calendar. Part of the celebration consisted of bringing a Yule log 
on December 24th with great pomp and using it as the foundation of a fire. The following morning, a young evergreen tree, palm tree, firm tree, was set up and decorated. Sacrifices were then placed under that tree. The day was celebrated with a great feast, which originally consisted of a boar's head and a goose. The festival was continued with a great deal of merrymaking, the giving of gifts, the Yule log symbolizing Nimrod having been cut down from the height of his power, cut into pieces and burned. The young tree representing the reincarnated Nimrod, which is why they generally use an evergreen, something that does not die, right? It is evergreen. This was the reason for the use of the conifer, the the evergreen tree. The period of weeping for Tammuz symbolized the great grief of the cosmos for their dead benefactor. Remembering that uh, Tammuz and Nimrod are considered one and the same, Tammuz being a reincarnation of, of Nimrod. This period of weeping lasted for 40 days just before a resurrection. Can you see how all of these pagan principles would be easily assimilated into the church? And so we have a celebration for a resurrection. That celebration for the resurrection happened just before a feast, which would lead up to the Feast of Pentecost, the time of the harvest, right? The barley harvest, the wheat harvest. So 40 days prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in liturgical denominations, beginning with the Catholic Church, what do they do? They have a time of mourning, a time of weeping, before the celebration for a resurrection. This is, the, this is parallel to the mother-child cult. The 40 days of weeping for Tammuz, it's called today Lent. The word solstice from sun means stand still. As it seems to do the shortest day of the year as it gets nearer to the southern horizon. December 25th became designated as the highest holy day of the mother-child cult with the southernmost descent of the sun portraying the death of Nimrod while the moving back into the spring portrayed his rebirth. A particular emphasis, as I've mentioned already, is placed upon the pagan rituals surrounding Easter. Easter is the logical offspring holiday originating from Christmas after the 40 days of weeping. So you have Christmas where they would recognize the death of Nimrod, the, the evergreen looking for his rebirth. Then you get, as, as the, the year would move on into the spring, you'd have the 40 days of weeping for Tammuz. And then you'd have Easter as the culmination of this. Easter itself was the name of a pagan vernal festival deriving its name from the fertility goddess Ishtar. For this reason, eggs and rabbits are associated with Easter. Eggs and rabbits being associated with Easter particularly because they're fertility symbols. And Ishtar was the goddess of fertility in her cult. So, when the, the church was paganized because they were legalized and then it became an expectation that the church would become effectively the state religion in Rome and you get a lot of pagans that come into the church and the pagans look at this and they say, hey, we've got a mother-child thing going on. Hey, we've got a resurrection thing going on. And how easy would it be then for there to be a merging of the mother-child cult 
with the teachings of Christianity, bringing about the idea where Mary and Jesus become the mother-child in the mother-child cult, where Lent becomes the weeping for Tammuz on the heels of the resurrection, and where the resurrection is no longer so much about the Passover as much as it is about Easter. Now, as I say all of this, Christmas is not... The idea of recognizing the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not wrong, right? The idea of celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not wrong. Now, there's no command in Scripture for either of these, as far as celebrations go, right? There is no command for holidays in the Scriptures, but they are not a wrong thing. The resurrection makes a little more sense than the incarnation. Uh, incarnation... Uh, Okay, he, he came, that's good, it's important. There were celebrations around his birth, and that's good. Uh, resurrection makes a lot more sense, because that's our blessed hope, right? But either way, these are not sinful things. It is, however, difficult to overlook some of the pagan connections as they've rooted themselves in Christian culture because of the 1,500 years where the Catholic mother church, I mean mother-child cult, dominated Christian culture. Perhaps it causes us to rethink some things. Perhaps it does not. The Bible tells us we have been called unto liberty. The Bible tells us that we have this freedom. Uh, just because you observe Christmas or you uh, observe various traditions of Easter does not by any means mean that you are, you are giving lip service or homage to some pagan deity. However, we do a disservice if we don't recognize some of the origins of these things. We'll actually see another one when we get to Jeremiah 10. In Jeremiah 10, God will talk about them cutting down trees and decking them with silver and with gold. And this was also a part of a pagan religious practice in regard to Nimrod and, and the evergreen tree and whatnot as well. And so many of these things found their roots in pagan practices, though perhaps they have been purged from many of them today. Where they have not been purged, however, is in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church maintains its feverish devotion to the principles of the mother-child cult. And to that end, it is not a stretch to call the elements of the Roman Catholic Church pagan and occultic. This is not a stretch when we understand the history. Does that mean that everyone in the Roman Catholic Church is pagan and occult? No. Does that mean there's no believers in the Roman Catholic Church? No, it does not. It does not. I mean, they still have a Bible. They still, uh, well, they allow their people to read the Bible now. And, and there's still opportunities for salvation. But the history of the Roman Catholic Church is a merging of biblical teaching with the mother-child cult of Babylon into a pagan mother-child cult that uses the name Mary and Jesus and Easter and Lent. There are numerous other manifestations of the Queen of Heaven cult today. I mentioned Mother Earth, a title that's been used for the eco-movement, the green movement, right? They have this mother-child cult, and really, their mother is the Earth. That is what they worship. Interestingly enough, uh, we see particularly this, this veneration for this goddess, Gaia, or this Mother Earth, in witchcraft, in Wicca, other forms of satanic worship. And what you'll find is that in witchcraft in particular, 
women are elevated to this goddess status. Uh, witchcraft is a is a a very female dominated uh, satanic movement for that reason. Females play a very prominent role, and it's because of once again their capacity to procreate, their fertility that gives them power. It brings back this mother-child cult concept. To that end, we must be careful that we place due emphasis upon the truths of the scriptures. lest our understanding of the divine Son of God be tainted by the pagan or satanic counterfeit of the mother-child cult. And this leads us to our second topic of application that is worthy of our time this evening, one which is far more clear, far more direct, far more straightforward, far more basic. I'm not going to have to give you a history lesson in order for us to understand this one. Uh, Toward the end of our study last week in Jeremiah 7, verses 30 and 31, we read this. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Jeremiah spoke against the people for the practice of burning their sons and daughters in the fire in the valley of Hinnom, in the high places of Tophet. The practice of burning their children in the fire is one of the most natural outcomes following the path of satanic systems. Human sacrifice has always been a hallmark of paganism. It has always been a hallmark of Satanism. Satan has always wanted human sacrifice, the death of the innocent. And this is once again the exact opposite of God, right? Because God loves the innocent. So much so that God says, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice, lest God may have mercy on him because you rejoice over his fall. God loves the innocent. God loves the weak so much that if I rejoice over the fall of my enemy, God might have mercy on my enemy because of my rejoicing over him. That's how much God loves the innocent. That's how much God loves the weak. That's how much God is an advocate for the victim. And yet, then we have this satanic system. And in this satanic system, the weak are despised. The innocent are cast out. They are trodden underfoot. And so human sacrifice has always been a hallmark of paganism and Satanism. This is something which is explicitly evil. Something which God says in Jeremiah 7, He never commanded, nor did it ever even enter into His heart. This is something that God never even, He never thought of, He never wanted, He never even, He never desired it in any way, shape, or form. Throughout every generation of pagan worship, there has always been human sacrifice. The desire to give of things most precious to a person, his offspring, the very, the very lifeblood of him as it relates to the next generation of himself. That is no less than what Satan asks of people to show reverence to a deity, to incur some sort of favor with him. It's a perversion of God's principles as it does relate to the firstborn. In Israel, God wanted the firstborn consecrated to him, right? God wanted the firstborn set aside to him, but not his life in the sense of killing him. Rather, as consecration of the first fruits to God. Satan perverted this concept to destroy the innocent and to lead father and mother into deep guilt and deep shame, which would hold them even deeper in his grasp. 
Human sacrifice has taken many different forms over the years. In the case of Molech, the god of the land in which Israel inhabited, the god that they would worship in the valley of Hinnom, in the high places of Tophet, they would place their hands on the outstretched hands of the idol which had been heated with fire, and that child would burn to death. In China, we find throughout their history that human sacrifice was very common. With the Celts, human sacrifice was very common. The Incas and the Aztecs in South America, human sacrifice was very common. Ancient Hawaiians, human sacrifice was very common. Mesopotamians, human sacrifice was common. Egyptians, human sacrifice was common. Add to that list the Western world in the past two generations where human sacrifice is common in the form of infanticide that we call abortion. If anything has become apparent about abortion in the 21st century, it's that it is not about reproductive justice, women's health, these things. If anything has become apparent about abortion in the 21st century, it is that it carries with it a religious zeal, a religious devotion. We're irrespective of evidence. We're irrespective of any cause. There is a religious zeal that surrounds advocates of abortion, particularly those in the higher-ups, that this has become to them a, a religious element of their lives. Like with child sacrifice to Satan in any era of history, many parents are deceived, many parents are pressured into these evil rituals, and then they carry with them the guilt of what they know to be an act of evil with them. But among the leaders, the clergy, if you will, there's a joy and there's a delight in the exercise itself. There's a feeling of empowerment in this. There is a, a, a craving for it. Modern statistics say that anywhere from half a million plus children are killed a year in abortion. Statistics have seen uh, in the, in the, the multi-million children per year being killed throughout the years since they've been taking statistics in 1970. Since 1970, in the United States, 40 million children have been aborted. At le uh, legally. I mean, these are the ones that they have records of, right? Not the ones that have been done illegally. This is, this is what they have the records of. 40 million since 1970. That's an awful lot of people. That's a lot of innocent lives. Abortion began in the United States as an attempt to cull the poor and black populations. It was a Marxist idea started by Margaret Sanger, who was a notorious racist, wanted to get rid of black people, wanted to get rid of impoverished populations, wanted to, to keep them from reproducing, wanted to sterilize them, wanted them to abort their babies to that end. Uh, black women are still three times more likely to have an abortion, Hispanic women two times as likely. All of this, of course, stems from a culture that is obsessed with sexual impurity and no accountability for decisions and actions, worshiping the culture of death, worshiping the God of self, worshiping the capacity to not have accountability for actions, to not take responsibility for actions, to not think ahead in our decisions, a do-what-thou-wilt mentality that says, I'm going to do what I want, and if there are negative repercussions that come from doing what I want, I'm just going to kill it because I don't want it, because it's inconvenient. 
and I am taking an interpretive leap here, but I don't see a difference. I don't see a difference between these parents that took their children and placed them on those outstretched hands to Molech in that day and what's happening today. Many a parent in that day did it because they thought this is what we do. This is what our God wants. Whether it was for purposes of deception, confusion, whatever it might be. The same reasons exist today as to why a, a parent would make this, these choices, but I don't see the difference. God tells us in Jeremiah 7, He never desired such things. He never asked for such things. They never came into His mind. This is an issue which does not infect the church quite as deeply as the paganism mentioned in the mother-child cult. And yet, if history is our teacher, we must understand that the evils of any particular generation can often encroach into the church in startling ways if we are not vigilant. This battle line, the line of the murder of the innocent, those that cannot defend themselves, those that cannot speak for themselves, and their destruction is a line which the church cannot yield. And as long as the Lord sees fit to allow us to have a voice in the affairs of government and of culture, we need to hold this line without wavering. It is not a health care issue. It is not a medical issue. It is not a civil issue. It is a moral issue. It is a spiritual issue. It is an issue of right and wrong. Ours is not the first culture or a society to deal with such abominations. The sacrifice of the innocent to the God of the age has been a practice in society as long as Satan has been deceiving men and women. The God has changed from age to age. The God may have been Molech. The God may have been the sun. The God may have been the moon. The God may have been whoever it is. In this age, the God is ourselves. The God is government. The God is whatever we, whatever God it happens to be in any given time. But the fact of the matter is it's the same principle. And we need to, to remember that when we read about Israel going into the valley of Hinnom and taking their children and placing them on this fire and sacrificing them to these gods, that this is not an issue that has gone away today. It's just changed forms. It's just changed forms. And this should cause us to fall upon our knees and beg God for mercy for this reason. As we continue to study, we'll find that the one thing that God says he could not overlook, and I've said this before, the one thing that God says this is the thing for which Israel must go into captivity, this is the thing for which the land is so polluted that I cannot countenance them anymore, is that you burned your children in the fires. This is an egregious sin before God, and it was the one thing of all of the egregious sins that God says I simply cannot pardon. And that should cause us to be very, very concerned for our day, for our culture, for the people of our time. Now, what should it not do? It should not cause us to treat the men and women deceived by the God of this world as the enemy. The God of this world is the enemy. The people who have been deceived, they are making choices. And they'll remain accountable for those choices. But they're not accountable to you and they're not accountable to me. They're accountable to God. The church has been given the right to judge her own. Any person who claims to be a believer is under the judgment of the church. But the unbeliever is not. God will judge them. And this is important. 
The church has always had, especially in the United States and a culture that was once quite moral, the church has had a rocky history with certain vices, things such as sodomy and abortion, where they have gone and sought to deeply guilt, shame, and condemn people who have found themselves ensnared in sin. It's one thing to tell the truth. It's another thing to take people that have no basis by which to understand the morality that you are espousing other than the simple laws of God and then to seek to pound them into the ground with it. And I would urge caution in these regards. I would urge care in relation to how you take these issues and you approach those who are, are struggling with them or women who have made the choice in the past to have an abortion. We do not sugarcoat sin. We have the right and indeed the duty to say what is true, but never forget what Ephesians tells us, that we speak the truth in love. We have the right and the duty to call abortion what it is as the murder of the innocent. Among the church, we have the right to impose spiritual sanctions upon those who would seek to sanction the murder of the innocent within the church. The church has every right to judge those people. The church has every right to, to, to weed that out, to cut it out like cancer. But among those who are unbelievers, we are called to say what is true, we are called to live what is true, but we do not sanction the unbeliever for living in unbelief because they're unbelievers. We do not remove ourselves from fellowship with the unbeliever for living in unbelief because they are unbelievers. We love them, we tell them the truth, but we leave the judgment to God. I've mentioned this principle several times. We pull it from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourself that wicked person. In a just society, a God-ordained uh, government would punish the murder of the innocent. Right? In a just society, the, a God-ordained government would, would say murder is wrong, murder is illegal, and anyone that murders, we will punish. Our society is filled with injustice. It is incumbent upon us to police our own. It is incumbent upon us to police the church and then to lovingly call the believer, show them the realities of their sin, and as with any sin, as with the reality of any sin in the heart of the unbeliever, to use this to call them unto the forgiveness and the grace that they can find in the cross. And that is this last point that I want to remind you about. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For we who are believers, let us remember that the sins of past, present, and future are under the blood of Christ. If a person within the church is actively espousing for the murder of the innocent, obviously we sanction them. If a person in another time made a choice to murder, to take the life of an innocent, and they are under the blood of Christ, and they have repented, look, it's over. It's done. 
The church does not sanction people for sins that have been forgiven. The church does not hold people under the weight and the guilt of sins that Jesus has taken upon them on the cross that they have uh, had applied to them by salvation through Jesus Christ and repentance. We don't hold these things against the believer for something that happened when they were an unbeliever. There is freedom. There is forgiveness with God. And this is something that's very important as well. For us to remember. This is something that's important for us to have on the tip of our tongues for when we find that person who says, I can't be saved, I did this. I can't be saved, I took the life of my child. What, what they don't tell you, but you can read articles about it all the time, is how many women live in constant guilt over their decision to have an abortion. How many women are racked with guilt day in and day out over their decision to take the life of a child. They don't tell you that. But you can, I mean, they have websites dedicated to testimonies about it. And so what needs to be on the tip of our tongue is the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the redemption that is found, the freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation in Jesus Christ. Because on the authority of God's word, no man, no woman, no child has to live under the guilt and the shame of previous choices. Because we have a God who smote his son and it pleased the Lord to bruise him for our iniquities for our sin for our guilt for our shame and it is this promise of forgiveness this release from guilt that calls those who have made such decisions unto the cross and so this needs to be on the tip of our tongue as we consider this blight upon our society the 40 million children that have been killed in the past nearly 50 years. So this second week of Jeremiah, this application, Jeremiah 7, excuse me, intended to allow us to park on a few things, dig deeper into the context. I hope it was helpful. I hope it gave some insight. I hope it renewed some perspective as it relates to the world in which we live and what's happening a culture in Jeremiah's day, which in Judah they were openly worshiping the Queen of Heaven, openly weeping for Tammuz, signs that revealed the pagan roots of this mother-child cult that they were engaged in, a, a culture where innocent children were being sacrificed unto the God of this world in order to keep the crops growing and plagues away. And as we read these many words reflecting upon the anger of the Lord, let us not lose sight of the justice that undergirds the Lord's anger. And let us keep it as a warning for our day that the only thing standing between us and the judgment of God is His great mercy. And it's a mercy that we need to be praying for. And it's a cause that should, that should keep us reaching out to a world that is deeply deceived by Satan. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.